With a history of 5,000 years, it's no surprise that China has created a fabulous treasury of folk tales. Once a year, on the seventh day of the seventh month, all the magpies fly up to heaven and form a bridge. So many amazing worlds to discover. I want a new palace, said King Mu of Zhou one day. Chinese folk tales retold for audiences today. Will, will you marry me? He asked. And with little hesitation, she said, <laughs> Yes! 5,000 years of amazing Chinese folk tales. My father must not go to war. Someone must take his place. You'll find Chinese Folk Tales Season 3, wherever you discover your favorite podcasts. keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing, I'm He Young. Good to have you join us. Why is Gen Z going to colleges for the elderly? And apparently, everybody's happy about it. Well, we'll get into that, and we share with you what made us happy this week in Roundtable's Happy Plays. For today's program, I'm joined by Fei Fei in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line, first on today's show. Recently, young people attending classes and colleges for the elderly and having a great time has been trending on social media. What attracts young people to classes designed for retirees? And how come the older folks enjoy having younger classmates? So tell us what's going on, Feifei. So some young people in China now are sharing their experiences when they enrolled in one of the colleges that we would say catered for the senior citizens in China. And for example, one post on the social media platform Xiaohongshu, the little red book, is that a 30-year-old female called Xiaoniu shared her story about enrolling, joining the class of traditional Chinese painting in one of these colleges. And I think that post got a lot of attention on that platform. And according to Xiaoniu, she got the timetable for that college from a friend who also joined one of the classes at the college. And so she was sort of attracted by the timetable and then she enrolled in the traditional Chinese painting class and then turned out she likes it very, very much. And one I think one big part of that is that the class is very, very affordable. It's only like 100 yuan or 15 something US dollars per semester. And there is only one class per week, which is not a lot of burden for someone who is not looking for a serious career or training experience in traditional Chinese painting. And also she thought the teaching with a teacher face to face is also more effective than learning online or from videos. And also she reassured a lot of the comments below is that she didn't take the quota for the senior citizens in the college. And she said the reason that she can enroll in that class is that they have vacancies in the classroom. So that's why she's allowed, even though she is only 30 years old and doesn't really meet the requirements for most senior colleges. 
And and then also she shared some of the tips about you know some colleges may have requirements when it comes to age. Is that some classes may not allow younger people to enroll in certain classes, and they have a sort of a basic minimum requirement for your age. So people really need to pay attention when it comes to if they really want to join in one of those classes in the senior colleges. Right. So there is limited space、mm-hmm. and seats for people to join, and age is kind of a requirement. Depends、mm-hmm. on the situation, and there are a whole wide range of classes one can join from dance, and apparently some of the dancing classes they are open to. Uh, folks from the age of eighteen to sixty,、mm. um, as long as, of course, the older folks, they will have priority to enroll as such. And then for some of the other classes, such as playing the harmonica or calligraphy,、mm. um, they're open to folks the age up to seventy. I don't understand why seventy is the ceiling age. It should be open to anybody. <laughs> I would think harmonica. <laughs> if I'm eighty years old, if I'm lucky enough. To be alive by then, I think I'd be able to play that instrument. Anyhow, so Josh, when you saw all these, you know, stories and personal anecdotes from this report, what did you think? I thought it was quite interesting, and I wonder if this is really something that's going to catch on. It seems to me that it's slightly more of a、uh, an exception, and that most of the time, these institutions. They will allow younger people to come in on sort of a case by case basis, and I think it makes for quite an interesting story. And I think that it sheds light on something that usually doesn't have light shed on it, i.e., elderly people or older people going to college and how cheap that it is for them. But really, I I don't know if this is going to be something that's going to become super popular for younger people, and I'm sure that if Too many younger people start attending these colleges. They're probably going to make the entry requirements a lot stricter. Yeah, that's a really legitimate query there. And just out of curiosity, Josh, do you have these colleges or educational institutions that are catering towards older folks specifically in your country? Yes, in the United Kingdom, there are universities and colleges.、Um, For elderly people,、uh, one of the most famous ones is called the University of the Third Age (U3A). This is a national organisation that provides classes, educational, social opportunities for retired and semi-retired individuals, and they have a wide, wide range of courses, much like the ones that you guys have described as well. Things in languages. Languages is a big one, actually,、um, especially in the UK, where many people. Uh, don't speak other languages because English is so dominant. So a lot of people、uh, post retirement really want to learn a language and pick something up. Things like history, social sciences are really popular. Again, music, art, stuff like this,、um, and they're usually led by volunteer tutors. And the entry requirements: there is a general age limit. Actually,、um, U3A is specifically designed for people that are no longer in full time employment. And they're supposed to be over fifty years old. It's not that strict. I have found that they do take people under fifty, but it's on a case by case basis. But the general rule there is that you're supposed to be over fifty. 
Right. And isn't the general rule for all these kind of schools is that you're there to have fun and exams aren't really that big a deal, is it? Yeah. And also, I think the reason why some young people are sort of rushing to these colleges is because there is no such thing as, a, for example, peer pressure or the pressure to get the best score or I don't think they also have a lot of homework when it comes to, especially when it comes to courses like painting or music or dancing. So it feels like a pressure-free environment and also affordable. So a, why that's why a lot of young people are interested in these courses. Mm-hmm. But I think also as... Uh, one of the reports from Shanghai Morning Post said they called three colleges in Shanghai for the elderly and none of these colleges would accept younger people. And I think when it comes to whether young people are able to enroll in these colleges really depends on the resources. For example, mm. in cities like Shanghai, where there are a large population for the senior citizens, obviously these seats in the classes will be limited. Mm-hmm. I don't think there will be enough even for the elderly people. So of course, young people won't be able to have the chance to enroll in these classes. But for you know other cities who may not have as big of a population as Shanghai, they may have one or two vacancies so that young people can be lucky enough to be enrolled. All right. And also the fact that these classes can be so quote unquote affordable is mainly because of public funding, right? Mm, Because of, I'm not sure if it's um, taxpayers money or what public funding goes into these universities and hire the teachers and create the space for older folks to continue learning and maybe pick up a hobby and enjoy life via learning, that Mm. kind of thing. So there's a reason why they're affordable. And therefore, I think um, we might need to think about let's not abuse the uh, situation, so to speak. Yeah, especially, I think, for the colleges for the seniors in China, it's basically a public welfare program. So as you said, the money comes from public funding. And I think a lot of the debates or discussions online right now really focuses on whether these young people are taking the space for the elderly, Mm -hmm. because obviously, these courses are designed for them. And the reason why they're so cheap is because, you know, you want to encourage them to take up classes there. And the elderly people can be very, very price sensitive. Oh. They only are willing to spend the money when they're thinking, you know, the money is absolutely worth it. Right. And also, I think it's an opportunity for them to socialize among the peers, like mm-hmm. among the people of the same age groups, yeah. so that you are not feel isolated from the society. Really. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get into that, but you mentioned another point earlier on which I find to be really interesting. And Josh, I wonder if this is something you can relate to. One of the major bright sides of young people joining these classes, apparently, is that they can put the daily grind, the rat race that we've talked about on the show, aside for a minute. And you're hanging out with all these older folks and in these classes learning a subject which is more for fun and pleasure. And also one of the bright sides is that there's 
no pressure. And that is something that people are willing to pay up so much for and is something that I think so many young people or people in society, they really, really want to be in that state of mind where there is no pressure. But I wonder if that is true. Because remember the um, TV series that's been really popular lately called or long season, one of the protagonists, Ma Dui, <laughs> Captain so this, Ma, <laughs> yes, this retired detective, after retirement, he joined some dance club. And remember how competitive he was amongst his peers? I wonder if this zero pressure notion is really holding waters in that sense because... Well, you know, if you put your heart into something, you want to do well. And once that competitive spirit is woken, and then I wonder if there is really no pressure to it. So, Josh, I mean, just if you were to join one of these classes, do you think that, yeah, it's going to be like carefree, fun, no stress, or maybe that is most possibly a picture that is painted too rosy? I think it depends. I think some people are always going to be competitive with themselves, <laughs> maybe, or with others and see all of these challenges as something that they need to accomplish and be their best at. And I think that that really just depends on the personality. I definitely think that I, I have taken these courses. I haven't gone to um, colleges or institutions. Oh. Yeah, I haven't gone to colleges or institutions specifically for older people, but I've gone to classes outside of university while I've been studying and while I've been working in my free time, I've gone to study other things because most universities offer courses that you just pay a small fee for and you attend. And the reason that it's so cheap, those courses are so cheap is because you don't get any sort of qualification or certificate mm -hmm. at the end of it. You're literally there simply for the joy of learning, for getting that skill, whatever that skill may be. Most of mine were language classes so um, there was quite a tangible result, actually, which was mm. my ability to speak the language better. But I, I think that um, really what it's all about for me, and I think for many people, is just personal growth and development. And I think that anybody, regardless of age, can benefit from this. It's been We know that learning is so beneficial for us. And I think we've discussed before about the benefits of lifelong learning mm. and cognitive health social engagement as well and I think it doesn't matter if you're 19 or uh, 19. 79 I think that <laughs> this is healthy yeah. for everybody involved for me that's how I see it anyway right well there's definitely that and on top of that socializing I think socializing this is the part that why these colleges have been praised as an important part for let's say a society that's growing rapidly grayer such as ours that is oh this offers a place where older folks can make friends hang mm. out that kind of thing Fefe you mentioned that and then the kind of curious bit here is that apparently young people find this may I say strange or just unexpected comfort zone when they're <laughs> hanging out with older folks with aunts and uncles or grandmas and grandpas and mm. Could you explain where that come from? Well, I think 
The reason is that, especially if during a class with a group of people of different ages, and I think it also benefits the elder people when there are some younger generations involved in their group learning experience. And I think some scholars are also advocating such learning method is called intergenerational learning program, which means that if we can give opportunities for both the young and the elderly people to learn from each other, and it also helps each other when it comes to providing companionship and also social interaction, especially social interaction part for the elderly. But then I also start to question this is that I think it's really a case by case experience. For example, maybe some elderly people love communicate with the younger people, or maybe more comfortable just, you know, socializing with people of their own age. Mm -hmm. And do they really enjoy a young people joining their class? I don't think, you know, it's a complete 100% answer to this question. And also think when you mentioned Ma Dui's story, which is, <laughs> you know, he is competitive. And the reason for his competitiveness is because they're selecting a pair of dancers to join, I think, a city level competition. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, if you want to show off your learning results, people will get competitive because there will be some people in the group who always want to be the winner, like mm. Mandoy, like Captain Ma out there. <laughs> and I think my mom also used to enroll in one of the dancing classes. Some of the IE, the aunties in those groups, they're, they're ruthless. They're, yeah, they're feisty. <laughs> like, I don't, I'm also sort of, you know, afraid of <laughs> talking to them because I'm not good enough to be her dancer or her partner. So I think it really depends on different people, different personality, different experiences. Yeah. And I think for the young people, they have really more options out there. If they want a pressure-free environment, these colleges is not their only option. They can enroll in all of the, you know, training courses offered on the market. And no one in these training courses will pressure you to get any certificate or result unless you want it yourself. Yeah. So I think it's really about yourself instead of, you know, it's not just the colleges for the senior can achieve that. Mm. Josh, you know, like you've spoken about in your country, for example, like an older person might feel, and I think this is shared by a lot of um, people of a similar age, maybe in this country as well. That is, maybe you've reached a certain age and then your friends might be scattered around or doing stuff or they're not there anymore. And then you retire, you gradually feel like you're the scope or the people you can hang out with, sort of the number goes down. And then, you know, what are the opportunities to meet new people? And what are the opportunities to meet people who are much younger? And then, you know, despite our background could be a bit different, but if there's one reason or cause for us to come together and get to hang out, I think that is kind of a luxury in a metropolitan uh, city or in, in a lot of countries in that sense, because, you know, we don't live in that village setting anymore. In the old days, when you have like generations of people who can just see each other in a really casual manner and hang out, but that doesn't really 
exist so commonly anymore. And that's the part that I find to be, huh, I did not expect this in these colleges that are designed for older folks. And I wonder, you know, just this intragenerational interaction might be something that that we can think maybe we can I don't know, replicate or somehow make it more available for people, if you see what I mean. Yeah, well, I think that we're kind of hyper-focused on the age and generation thing here. But really, what I think it is, what's difficult is that there's different kinds of friendships, right? There's different kinds of socializations. People are friends for different reasons. Usually it's categorized, at least in the English-speaking world, we categorize them as three different types of friendships. You have character friendship, which is based on mutual moral beliefs, right? You have um, a benefit friendship, which is more like your friends at work, for example, because you know that each one has a mutual benefit from something. And there's something called a pleasure friendship, which is where you are friends or you socialize because you have a similar interest. And I think that that type of friendship is a very strong one, but it becomes it becomes increasingly difficult to find people who have similar interests to you as you get older. I guess when you're younger, you're just, when you're at school and stuff like this, you're just constantly doing so many activities. You're studying the same major as other students. You're in the same sports teams or clubs or whatever. And you're just meeting loads of people who have similar interests. But when you start working and you're doing it for money, I think slowly but surely, I know I'm finding this, I'm looking around and I'm thinking, I don't know anybody that's interested in Jimi Hendrix, for example, this guitar player that I love that I knew I used to speak about all the time when I was at university. Football is one thing that I've forced myself to retake back up in the last couple of years. Um, and that has benefited me so much. Also learning. And I think that social engagement in these kind of institutions are really beneficial because it allows people to connect with others who share similar interests. And I think that gets quite hard as you get older. For example, how many people do you know that uh, I really want to start studying French again, right? I'm 29. And I've asked multiple friends around me, do you want to join this French class with me? Do you? And they, everyone says, no, of course I don't want to do that, Josh. I've got plenty of other things that I want to be doing. And I'm too nervous to go on my own. So but I know if I did it, I'd probably meet people that I'd get along with really well. And I think that this is one thing that is really cool about these institutions and also cool about different generations meeting. Well, for me, I think I have a, like a slightly different take on this mm -hmm. is that, well, I'm drawing this from my own experiences is that especially in recent years, I slowly find myself having a bit of a difficulty communicating to people a lot younger than me. Like it's babies, <laughs> like you know, people born around the year two thousand. Uh -huh. It's like what's I can, wrong with them? <laughs> I can understand their values, their interests, their hobbies. It's just I cannot get on board with them. But we don't need to get on board with. Yeah, people. you don't need to get on board yeah, with it's their just whole being understanding. moral it's compass. Just, it's yeah. just that but, very but specific niche thing, right? Yeah, like, but it's it's about you know I can't more. really be friends with them. I can you know be like acquaintance That's or co-worker yeah. basis um, of sort of relationship. Yeah. But it's really difficult for me if I, even though I really want to 
get more close with them. And I find it really, really difficult is either compromising some of myself so that I can sort of catch up on their hobby or interests. Mm -hmm. And then I realize maybe it's just I'm too old for for their world and and longer. And I think maybe for some of the elder people out there, they some of them also share this feeling is that I can't understand the younger generation's world, but I can't really be part of it. And I don't want to be part of it because it's really difficult for me to join in those a lot of different interests and habits and everything else. And I think for younger people who want to join in these colleges or institutions for the seniors, it somehow reminds me of they are taking up some of the space in the society of this older generation is that the reason why the country spend a lot of money to set up these colleges is that they want to create a space for them Mm -hmm. and for them to socialize or for them to learn, for them to have self-growth. And I think we should primarily reserve this space only for the elderly. And then maybe if there are some vacancy available, young people can join. But I think young people should look out for other opportunities first before they're thinking, wow, this class is really affordable. I want to join as well. Mm -hmm. I see that, but I still think there's great merit in for people of different generations to get to know each other because we usually hang out with people of a similar profession, of similar age or whatnot. I just think there are so many unexpected pleasant surprises about people mm. and um and i just maybe it's a little bit of a romanticized way of looking at people and life but uh i like to think there are opportunities for people of any age to learn and grow and to know these new people in these new settings so to speak and i'll also offer you one last set of figures there are more than 76,000 universities for the elderly across China as of February last year and with registered students of over 14 million. So these educational institutions are definitely one slice of retirement life and pleasure for the folks here in this country. You're listening to Roundtable. Coming up next during the second half of the show, we'll share with you our happy place. D-Dive, a podcast of CGT Radio. Go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Feifei in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, we share with you what's made us happy this week in Roundtable's Happy Place. And it's common in Chinese streets to have a bus lane reserved only for buses, not for private cars during rush hour. Should public bus lanes be open to all vehicles in other hours? We discuss in the realm of public transportation, should there be, or who should enjoy the fast lane. 
Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. And please keep sending us your comments, thoughts, and questions to ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. Your voice could be featured in the show in our heart-to-heart -heart segment. Now, welcome to Roundtable's Happy Place. Delivery, delivery, delivery. What is it? Happy news from Roundtable. Feifei, what is your happy place this week? Well, I won't call it a happy place, but it's definitely a place sort of stick with me this whole week. Is that I recently did a podcast called Deep Dive, and this week for the World Environment Day, we did an episode talking about a scientific expedition on the Mount Chomolama or the Mount Everest. And the reporter actually went on the journey on the Mount Chomolama, and it's really, really refreshing for me, especially who've never, never set a foot on that high altitude before, to hear about some of the first-hand experiences on the mountaineer, and especially on the ice and snow situation on that mountain. And one thing that really, really sticks with me is that. Um, the reporter talked about when they came across a lot of really, really beautiful ice towers on the mountains. You know,、mm. they are glittering the sun, and it's just really clear. And you know, after walking with really thin air for a long time, really cold environment, it's really refreshing to see these ice towers. But then scientists start to joke about how old these ice towers are. Like they are in their 80s or 90s. Or even in their ICU days. Well, so that's why I say it's not a happy place. But it really sticks with me, and also very, very awakening is that for us non-professionals, we talk about these concepts about you know the the weather is getting warm, about the climate is changing,、mm -hmm. but it's not really that of a shocking thing that we see on a daily basis. But I think for scientists, they've witnessed. For example, melting ice towers for decades already, so that's why they start to make jokes about it. But then for us, I think it's just very, very awakening for me and also for the reporter as well. Is that the world we're living in right now is very, very different than say two decades ago, and also. The reporter also shared one of the professional mountaineers who is a pe local people in Xizang. Is that he said before when he was growing up, just on the foot of the Mount Chumalama, he saw a lot of snow, and especially the mountain top is、uh, always capped with a thick, thick snow, and it was really beautiful. He said it was it was really, really holy, and then he said now if you look around the base camp. Everything you say, you see, is rocks. The bare rocks. The snow is gone. The ice is gone.、Mm. So they are really living this world that,、um, you know, is getting warmer and warmer by the day. And they are not really. I think for mountaineers and local peoples, they're not really sure about the impacts of it. But for scientists and also for reporters like us, we know what would happen after the snows are gone or the ice or melt away, and so I think these episodes is one of the 
episodes I've done recently that that's just lasts in my mind for mm. a long time. So even though it's not a happy place, but it's definitely a place that I want to continue to share with our listeners out there. And it's worth your attention. And every time when I hear these stories, I wonder what we can do. And we feel there is not that much we can do. We should. It should be the government, the country, the bigger players, big businesses as such to really make a change. And some, to some extent, that's reflected in the figures as well. But I refuse to give in to that thought because I still think that collectively there's got to be something that we can chip in and because we're all going to bear the consequences together. Mm. And we don't want to leave a world that is not good that is not sustainable for the future generation either. So mm. time to take action, seriously. And Josh, what is your happy place? Well, there is a very popular television series that started in the United Kingdom in 2011 called Black Mirror. And this new season, season six, is coming out on June 15th, which I'm very excited about. It's one of my favorite TV series. I wonder if anybody else has heard of it. Yes. And I'll tell you why I love it so much and why it's making me so excited. I've just re-watched all of the other seasons, basically all of them, because season five isn't that good. But anyway, wow. um, it's a British science fiction anthology television series created by a British writer, producer, comedian, Charlie Brooker. And it first premiered on Channel 4 in 2011, but it's now moved over to Netflix. So it's much higher budget than the original series. Um, Black Mirror, it, the name actually, it refers to the reflection that we see in our various devices, in our, on our various screens and technology. And it's about the dark side of technology, how it affects our lives, etc. It's really interesting because each show, each episode is actually a standalone story on its own. I think it's just incredible. And it's really gained a massive following over the last 11, 12 years. So uh, I, I think it speaks for itself, but I, I'm really excited about this. It gives me a real thrill to be able to watch this because you never know what episode is going to give you what kind of message. Some of them are better than others, but still, um, it's always very exciting. And again, just like the topic we've been talking about today, it's something that me and my British friends often talk about in detail. It's one of those things that um, really starts conversations and i we always look forward to discussing it post episode yeah and that's uh the modern or today's version of prestige tv i would think which is kind of rare increasingly there's just so much out there to watch but black mirror is definitely popular among some hardcore fans here in china as well uh, i've seen lengthy reviews of people uh, online all over social media as such and uh yes that's exciting news something else you can check out and i would like to share with you my happy place this week is about a radio drama Radio drama, radio plays are dramatized acoustic only performances. They're typically listened to in a in the year rather than washed upon a stage as they rely on creative dialogue, music and sound effects to tell their story. And what can make audio dramas exciting is the actor's ability to be captivating with their voices and the mesmerizing sound effects and 
my happy place this week is a radio drama of CGT and radio production called Glad You Are Here. It's inspired by a true story of a blind makeup artist, Xiao Jia. This drama explores themes of resilience, self-discovery, and the profound impact of human connection. And just like producing a radio show such as Roundtable, radio drama production is teamwork. A platoon of professionals work together to accomplish the project. From the creative process to acting and recording and post-production, so many people have put in hours of work to this radio drama. Lu Chang, who wrote and produced the radio drama, told me that she was deeply moved and inspired by the protagonist's story, which she found out during reporting a couple of years ago. And she was determined to write a script and dramatize this story. And by listening to this radio drama, it made me think of a quote along the lines that there's no greater disability in society than the inability to see a person as more. With this radio drama, to me, it's about breaking down barriers for persons living with disabilities, also for anyone who feels your soul is walled up and looking for a transformation. So aside from that, <laughs> if you enjoy Roundtable, there's a hidden treat. A few panelists, roundtable friends, you know, those who've been on the show, have acted parts in this radio drama. So it's kind of fun to use your ears to detect, who's that? Is that who I think it is? <laughs> and for all subscribers to our podcast, Roundtable China, this radio drama will pop up in your podcast feed this Saturday. It's 15 minutes of your life and um, hope you click listen and enjoy it. I hope you all find the courage to make a breakthrough in your own life. And that's my happy place. Coming up next, should bus lanes be exclusive or not? Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable, where East meets West, and understanding is the goal. It's the hour of Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Josh Cotterell on the line and Fei Fei in the studio. If you live in China, you must have come across the road situation where regular car lanes are heavily congested, while the one adjacent bus lane is all clear. The bus lane is reserved for public buses most of the time. When the roads are so congested, are vacant bus lanes a waste of public resources? Now some cities have rolled out measures to put the limited space on the road to more efficient use, while opponents argue that it might bring more problems. So let's take a look at the new measures taking place in Beijing and Chengdu. Yes, that happened in the beginning of this month. On June the 1st, both 
Beijing and Chengdu made adjustments to the management of their bus lanes. And these adjustments include a lot of points. For example, they reduced the dedicated lane hours for only buses. For example, right now in Beijing, most of the bus lanes are now only exclusively for the public buses between peak hours. And for private cars, they can continue to drive on those lanes when you know it's not during the peak hours. So, and now they're also allowing non-public transportation vehicles to use the lanes. Um, and then they're also permitting school buses or commuter buses to use the lanes at dedicated hours as well. And the backgrounds for this adjustments is to optimize the management measures for bus lanes issued by a higher governmental organ in April. And according to the Traffic Administration Bureau of the Ministry of Public Security, bus lanes should only allow buses to travel or make temporary stops at bus stops while prohibiting other vehicles from freely traveling, stopping or parking in them. So in some cities, school buses or medium-sized or larger passenger vehicles, taxis or special vehicles engaged in emergency tasks, for example, police cars, fire trucks, ambulances, are also allowed to travel in these bus lanes. So it's really a city-based policies. And right now, Beijing and Chengdu are making some changes. And I think some of them are praising these decisions because obviously we're, I think especially for me as a driver, I'm okay with buses, you know, having special lanes during peak hours, during really congested traffic hours. But then after especially nine in the morning, if I can drive on these lanes, that would be much, much easier because a lot of the time during off peak hours, you can see um, the other two or three lanes are packed with private cars while the special bus lane is empty. No cars or vehicles or buses are on there and you feel like it's such a waste of space. Mm. I can just drive on those lanes and leave this congestion in a minute, but I can't because that's 200 yuan off my pocket. <laughs> so I can't do that. Yeah. And, and now I, I really, as a driver, I praise these decisions. Interesting. I remember the uh, in the early days when I first started driving in China, I did not know that those lanes were open for private drivers, uh, motorists as such. So I went on there and had to pay the fine later. <laughs> um, and, and also, I think that shows um, there could be some misunderstanding with um, when exactly are these lanes open for private cars? Because back in the day, I remember I just didn't see the writing on the uh. road and there were no other notices around. So I just didn't know. And Josh, what's your first reaction when you saw the story? Well, I, I guess that it's kind of interesting because when I looked at this research, I was looking at the declining popularity of buses in my own country and also around the world. And it, it does seem as though um, the popularity of buses is, is declining. And so maybe it makes sense to start opening them up to some degree to other people. But I think that there do need to be designated spaces for this like, because I think that public transport needs to be invested in. And whether it's a bus or whether it's a, in the future, it's some sort of flying vehicle of sorts <laughs> that 
whatever it is, if it's a bigger vehicle that allows the public, more people to get on it, I always think that there should be designated spaces for them. I think it's important for a city and I think it's important for the environment uh, as a whole. So I think we have to be quite careful here. And mm. I must admit that when I'm cycling around China, I'm pretty confused a lot of the time whether I'm in the bus lane or not. And I see various vehicles, all sorts of contraptions going down them. And I'm not really sure where and when I'm supposed to be in it anyway, if I'm being really, really honest here. Right. So I, I, I know it would what be you nice mean. if these rules were clearer. Because yeah. sometimes the uh, bicycle lane is not so clear. Yeah. Well. And, and also there could be parking in the bicycle lane, <laughs> which is a headache. And then the bus lanes are not always that clear either sometimes, but you have to look for the uh, specific kind of print. Yeah, especially in Beijing, I guess, is um, sort of painted yellow on the ground, telling you, you know, the hours you are allowed to, dr to drive on the bus lanes. But for people who may, who may be the first time driving on this road, they're not really sure. So a lot of times I see that the bus lanes is empty and private cars are allowed to drive on these bus lanes at this hour, but a lot of drivers are afraid of driving on it because they are not clear on the rules. And so they're, they'd rather stay in the jam and wait in the line for a longer period of time. So I think we also have this issue when it comes to signage and how to make the bus lanes more clear to drivers, especially, you know, drivers who are not familiar with the region. For example, I think in Shanghai or some other cities in China, their bus lanes are painted in a different color. So it's very, very obvious that this lane is special. Mm -hmm. And I think it's painted in red. Whoa. So you can tell from a really far place that, oh, this lane is special. And then you, you know you probably need to look around before you drive on these lanes. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, Beijing could also, you know, learn something from that. Maybe make the signs and also the, the colors maybe more prominent than mm -hmm. right now. It's only a few letters in yellow, which can be ne neglected very easily when you're driving. Yeah, sometimes I have to drive really up close and make sure that at the corner of my eye I can see those characters and then check the time and see if I can sort of move over to, 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 to that lane yeah. or, or not. But, but also I think what Josh, you mentioned earlier is very central to the discussion. That is... Um, how can we make better use of public resources without infringing on the rights of, let's say, people that we want to take care of? Or, you know, what is the greater good in all of this? And what kind of compromise do we want to make with this seemingly limited space? on the road and should these bus lanes be opened up private cars during these designated hours when they're not so busy anymore but could we might accidentally take up room where public buses should maybe very much enjoy because you think of who's taking the bus these days and we see in China there is a decline in ridership as well but it's apparently now mostly older folks or people who have to travel to A to B and buses usually 
you know, sometimes they take a longer time despite mm-hmm. having the special lane. But, you know, there's that fixed route that they need to travel around. And so there are these different interests that needs to be assessed and balanced here. What do you think? Well, it really depends on the routes you commute daily. For example, I think most of the commuters in Beijing, at least right now, the reason why they're taking buses are mostly for short distance travels. For mm. example, from their subway station to their home, they probably take, say, three to five stops only. And most of the time, these routes doesn't involve main roads like the third ring or the th- second ring road in Beijing. Um, but at the same time, most of the bus lanes are seen on those main roads. So I think it makes sense that people, uh, uh, no, not people, but you know, the city governments are slowly taking a lot of bus lanes that allowing private cars to drive at designated certain time periods. And but then I also think if you want to, especially now when we're talking about traveling green, you want to encourage people to take public transportation. Mm -hmm. And of course, buses are very important part of the public transportation. And so if, for example, I have a friend who commute on the Chang'an Avenue in Beijing daily, and he likes travel on buses, it's one, because it's fast, than driving himself because you know the bus you enjoy is, your exclusive lane yeah you got your exclusive lane and you can travel long distance really really fast on that avenue and also we can see the beautiful sceneries along the road and he enjoys traveling on buses so that's why he drives less and start to take the buses more and i think maybe these lanes will help people make such decisions when they are thinking about you should i drive should i take the public transport you know thinking about you know taking the buses is faster then why not it's also very cheap cheaper than subways also Mm -hmm. so i think we also need to reserve some places for these public buses so that people have more options and can travel greener in a sense. Josh, you always come to the show with international comparisons for us. So tell us. Yes, I do. And I have some <laughs> for you as well. There's actually some quite interesting examples, very interesting examples of bus lane laws and oh. practices around the world. All right. I got you on the edge of your seat for these bus lane laws. For example, in Oslo, which is in what country? Anyone tell me? Norway? Very good. In Oslo, Norway, buses and trams have priority over all other traffic. So the way that they do it there is that there are no traffic lights that can even stop them. They're like the lords of the road, which I think is quite interesting. But I guess that Oslo probably isn't as busy as maybe Beijing and also I think that maybe infrastructurally the transportation there is maybe a little bit more effective so maybe that's why. Also in my own country the capital of my country which is London there are bus lanes that are only open to buses and bicycles during certain hours of the day so it's quite similar to this new method that we're talking about here today and outside of those designated hours other vehicles are allowed to use the lanes and The idea here is that it allows for a maximizing of the use of lanes while still allowing other vehicles to use them. Obviously, it seems pretty obvious. 
And I've got one more example for you in Bogota, which is in which country? Can anyone tell me? You got me on this one. Colombia, all right, oh. in South America. So the Trans Milenio bus rapid transit system has its own dedicated lanes, and they're actually separated from the rest of the traffic by barriers. So in this instance, in this country, they have physical barriers to stop other cars or whatever going into the lane. So even if you're unsure, you won't be able to get into it. And this is actually proven really successful, apparently, in Bogota. So this is another map. Very interesting. Well, traveling by bus has its benefits, which Fefe you presented to us with your friend's example.、Um, but also, I just think when it comes to green transportation or public transportation, for a lot of people in big cities in China, we think of taking the subway,、mm. and I think that's arguably a bigger chunk of what people can do to sort of contribute to cutting. Carbon、uh, emission and、um, sort of leading a lifestyle that is more environmental friendly. And buses, maybe they need to think about how to attract more people to use them. Well, I I I I don't know about that. Oh, is that, okay. Um, you know, when I commute, when I go to work every day, a part of my subway ride is extremely, extremely crowded. I、oh. have to wait for like five trains to、oh. be able to get on the train. So I enjoy taking the bus for that part of my travel. Is because the buses are less crowded and. Yeah, it can be a little slower than subway, but at least I don't have to wait for five buses to get on it. And it's so I think I still enjoy buses、uh, around my neighborhood, especially. I think it's convenient, especially for short distance travel. And yeah, I think even though there aren't as many people taking buses as before, but I still think. You know, sometimes you do need them. Yeah, sometimes we need these basic services and their important infrastructure for our society. Despite on the surface they seem not really all that effective, maybe another example I can think of is the post office. Yeah, I challenge you to name one post office in the world that is not. Hemorrhaging money, but we still need them, right? Because that's like the basic safety net or of communication for for people in, in in countries. And that brings us to the end of today's roundtable. Thank you so much, Fei Fei and Josh Cotterell for joining the discussion. I'm Hyung. We'll see you next time. <laughs>